right. Good morning, everybody. Or good evening, good afternoon, if you're out there watching online, wherever and whenever it is, we're glad that you're here. I especially, though, love faces in the sanctuary here, so thank you for, for coming out. Some of us coming out of our caves for the first time in a long time, um, but it feels good to be out and gathering together in person. At least it does to me. I hope it does to you. Uh, so welcome, everybody. We are in uh, a series leading up to Christmas, an, ad, an Advent series, I want to call it, but... Um, if those of you who have been following along with our Advent devotionals, or maybe you got the tree that we did that has the Advent uh, bags on it with scriptures throughout the day, if you've been intentional in any way like that about leading up to Christmas, congratulations, you're on the right path. It's too easy to get caught into what the world wants to guide you towards, and that's commercialism and buying and how many shopping days left until Christmas. I choose to not look at it that way. I choose to measure the days coming up to Christmas, but more so in terms of the joy that it brings, the joy and the the meaning behind Christmas Day. That's the reason that many, many churches and, and we kind of follow along with Advent. There are many different ways that you can sort of celebrate Advent. The way we do it is just with the scriptures that we go through and the daily devotionals. So if you've been following along on Facebook or YouTube with the daily devotionals we do, Um, Again, you're on the right path, and it's not too late. There's still a few days left, so I invite you to join us. Again, they're on our Facebook page or or on our YouTube page. You can catch those. Um, But the whole point is just to be intentional about your faith. It's too easy to just go through life, especially when everything's going on now, kind of with blinders on. Anybody else notice, like, as soon as you put on a mask, your hearing changes, your ability to see and remember things changes? It does me, and it shouldn't affect any of that. But it does, because I'm more focused on what I can't do than the things that are laid out in front of me. And I want my heart to be geared more towards what we can celebrate through Christ. So that's why um, that's why on Christmas Day, I think we celebrate more than just the birth of a baby. Everybody, every time a baby's born, there's a celebration of some kind at some level. And Christmas is no different, but it's much more than just the birth of a baby even more so than the celebration of the birth of a really special baby. To me, it is the fulfillment of God's promises. It's just another step along the way that you can look at and say, God promised us us that, and here it is, being fulfilled. And through that, through watching those steps and learning about what those prophecies mean and how they foretell the things that are going to happen, it helps us to see as we go throughout our day that as much as chaos seems to be ruling everything that happens in the world these days, God has known, and he has always known the things that would go through and how we would go through them, and he has made a way. He has made a way for us to hang on to, an anchor to hang on to in the storm to where we don't have to be tossed around by what's going on in front of us. We know we have something we can count on, and for me, That's the good news of great joy that we celebrate going into this season. Now, that brings us to the scripture for our series. Our series is called Good News of Great Joy. And the scripture that we use to kind of guide us through uh, these weeks leading up to it is Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. So follow along. We've got it on screen. I'll read it to you. But the angel said to them. Now, who's the them? The them is the shepherds in the field 
Just these regular old shepherds minding their own business out in the field. An angel appears to them out of nowhere. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That is good news of great joy. But if we break that apart, there's good news, great joy, all the people, and then a Savior born. So there's many things going on in that scripture. And so what we've been doing is taking that apart, looking at each one of those pieces. Last week, we talked about the great joy to be found in Christ. And if you look back at the time that this was written, the moment that that angel revealed that news to the shepherds, there wasn't a lot going on in their lives to be joyous about. It was a rough time in, in the history of man. Um, there was persecution going on. There, was, there were tyrants ruling all over the land. There, there were a lot of reasons to not have joy. So to find any joy and to hang on to that was not always easy. And when this angel says, I bring you good news of great joy, it was exciting to them. It had to be exciting. Like, here it is. They would have known, being, being Jewish, those shepherds would have known that about this time, they all knew. The whole nation of Israel knew what Scripture had told about the arrival of a Messiah, the birth of a Messiah, the promises that a Messiah was going to be born to them. And when this angel shows up and says, it's here, they had to think, life is changing now. It's going to be so much better. But the problem is, is, is that earthly joy that they were probably expecting, my life is going to be easier. No more tending shepherd, sheep in the field. Now I'm going to have a palace. I'm going to have all these things that the Messiah is going to bring. Those kind of earthly joys can be fleeting. In fact, for them, nothing really changed in their lives, at least not for the better. But we need to draw a distinction then between the, that earthly joy that can be, can be fleeting, it can be fragile, and then the eternal joy, which is what the angel promised. So drawing that distinction there, we learned that, that, again, that eternal joy is what we should be focusing on. That's what the angel was talking about, that eternal type of joy. So this week... We're going to focus more on the third part of this goodness. We have good news, great joy, all the people. We're going to focus on that third. It's offered to all the people. Now, you wouldn't think that the phrase, all the people, would be something that Bible scholars would debate. You wouldn't think there'd be an awful lot of question about all the people. You just, okay, good news or great joy for all the people. It seems very straightforward, but you'd be wrong. Scholars, especially theologians and Bible scholars, can, they can find reasons to debate and argue just about anything, and this is no exception. So let's take a closer look at this phrase, all the people, <clears throat> and see really why it's good news of great joy, especially if you're not Jewish. If you're not Jewish, this is especially good news of great joy. Some translations now, that I read you the scripture earlier, some translations are worded a little bit differently. For example, in the King James, which I don't often teach out of, but it's listed like this. 
And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which, well, which shall be to all people. So what's missing in this translation that was in the first one that I read you? The word the. Seems very simple. It's just a word the, right? Just a connecting word. This says to all people. The first version I read you out of New American Standard, and a lot of versions say to all the people. What's the big deal, right? The big deal is that theologians through the centuries have state the claim on what they feel that that means and the significance of it. In other words, is the the significant? Is the the significant? Can I say that? Any English teachers out there? Correct me. Some say that the word the indicates only the nation of Israel. And that would, that would be logical. You wouldn't be wrong in making that assumption to begin with. It's understandable, but we need to understand it in context. Let's look at it a little bit. First of all, as far as it being understandable, the way that a, that a Jewish person would have heard that and would have understood it, 700 years before Jesus, there was a prophet named Micah. We taught about him when we were doing our Minor Prophets series. He was encouraging Judah, the nation of Judah, to, to stay faithful. Stay faithful to the promises of God. Stay the course because things are going to get better. And Micah said it like this. This is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'll just read it for you. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephathra, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, he was telling them, things may be bad now, but trust me, hang on, because the king of the Jews is coming from you. The future ruler of Israel is going to come out of your people. That would have been exciting. They would have hung on to that, and that would have been a promise that they'd, they're just waiting for the fulfillment of that. And that's great news for the people of Israel. So for 700 and some years, even prior to that, they were holding on to that promise that this was going to happen. But if that's all there was to the story, if that's all there was to the, to the birth of Jesus and the stories leading up to it, most of the world would be exempt from this good news of great joy because it would only apply to the nation of Israel. If that's all there was to the story, we wouldn't be talking about it today. Now, to figure out why that's the case and whether all the people is just the people of Israel or if all people is the more accurate way to look at that, everybody, we have to start looking to scripture, to history, and different things for clues. So let's look at this. One big clue to figuring this all out is, is included in almost everybody's nativity scene. If you've ever seen one, if you have one, we have one in the back there. It's almost always included in it, and it might look something like this. Recognize these guys? Not every nativity scene has magi candle holders, which is extra cool. Ours doesn't, but this is the idea. You usually see them in these figurines, and they kind of, they're portrayed as kings more often than not. These guys have, have crowns on. The ones in our own nativity scene, they have crowns on, and they're almost always portrayed that way as kings. Now, the book of Matthew is the only one to really even talk about these guys, okay? The other books don't really include anything about them, 
So we're going to take our scriptures from Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Okay, that's how these Magi are introduced into this story. We don't know really much about them before this. And after their little scene here, they kind of disappear again. We do know this. They're often, they're almost always portrayed as kings, when, when in reality, they're, they're most likely they weren't kings. We know that despite the lyrics of the song, We Three Kings, which some of you are already singing in your head, they probably weren't kings. We know this about them, though. They were probably rich. They were probably very rich because not only could they leave the east, which is Persia in this case, leave that and travel all this distance, a big distance, meaning that they had to bring not only supplies, but people to come with them to protect them from roaming caravans of, of bandits. Um, it was a big undertaking. And not only that, did they do that, but they brought gifts. So they're probably pretty rich, well-to-do. They were most likely very wise men, probably very well-educated. We know this part from, because we have to do a little deduction here, the word itself, magi, which they're frequently called magi, comes from the Greek word magos, and it means, literally what it means is an Eastern astrologer. That's how that word translates. It's actually the root word for magician. So these magicians, astrologers from Persia is what it's talking about. That word magos itself comes from an old Persian word, and I don't know how to pronounce the word exactly, but it's magaputai. Magaputai is the Persian word, and that was the title that they gave to priests in a certain religion called Zoroastrianism. And these priests, uh, it's an ancient Persian religion, um, thousands of years old. Even at this point, it was thousands of years old. And what they did is that these priests studied astronomy. They would have known very much about the movement of the stars and the planets. They studied it intently, and they used that knowledge to predict world events which made them really, really valuable to the rulers of those days who would call them in and consult with them, and they would say, you know, the stars and the planets align, and they tell me you're going to be successful in this battle or you aren't uh, in many ways. So they had that, and then they would just gather knowledge from any sources that they could. So they're very learned men, and this is what they would do. Now, we also don't know if there were three of them or ten of them or 20 or 2 or 1, we don't, don't really know. It just says magi, plural, from the east. We do know that if we look at some of the earlier, they're almost always depicted as 3, right? If we look at some of the earlier accounts of them, or, or especially images in art or, or drawings or anything, we find that it's been a long time where people have believed that there were 3. Let's look at this, in fact. This is a carving on the side of a sarcophagus that's marble. And it's from the third century. It's in, it's in Italy. So third century Italy, on the left here, we have Mary, we have Jesus, and then we have the three men with their camels in the background coming to visit. Now we know that these are pagans that are coming, and the reason we know they're pagans is because underneath their tunics, you can see their tunics there, they're wearing pants. 
that indicated that they were pagans because if you're a good if you're a good Roman or a good Hebrew, you didn't wear pants. That was strictly reserved for pagans. So those of you who are wearing pants today, no. But that's how we know. But that's from the third century, and there's three of them. You can see they're, they're bearing gifts. That's one of the earlier ones. There's a lot of questions then about who these guys were and how many there were. We do know this, though. They had seen an unusual star in the sky, and they knew, they knew that this signified something significant. In this case, they knew that it signified the birth of a king, a special king in Israel. How did they know that? Did you ever think about that? How did these pagan kings that studied uh, pagan religions and stars, how did they know about the significance of this particular star? It's interesting. Let's take a look at the. It's interesting to me. I hope it is to you. Let's look at this really quick. If you look back in the history of Israel, about 600 years prior to the the angel introducing this idea to the shepherds and Jesus being born, there was a prophet, okay? And his prophet, this prophet's name was Daniel. And Daniel was being held in captivity. He had been taken, or the whole nation of Judah had been taken, of Israel, that is, I'm sorry, had been taken into captivity 600 years before that. They were in Babylon. And they were captives. They were slaves. And this one particular captive named David was also a prophet of Israel. And what he did is he used his captivity to further the knowledge of who the God of Israel was. Now, this is another example. And many all throughout the word, just kind of a side note here, Daniel could have been a reluctant captive. Like, what's what's it like to be a cooperative captive? He could have been He could have been a total butthead. He could have said, I'm not going to talk to you guys. I'm not going to share any knowledge with you. I'm just going to be over here and do my thing because I'm a slave and I'm captivity and I don't like it. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. What he chose was to use this time among the pagans, among this enemy nation, to further the knowledge of the God of Israel. So he shared his knowledge with everybody. He shared it with these Zoroastrianism people. Uh, He shared it with the rulers. He shared it with Nebuchadnezzar himself. We know that because Daniel actually had the ear of Nebuchadnezzar. If you look through biblical history here, there's a lot that happened through the fact that Daniel was willing to share what he knew with his captors. So God can use even a time when you're in captivity, even at a time when things are going on the surface terribly bad for you, taken away from your home, placed into slavery and in captivity. In that place, God could still use you. God could still use Daniel in this case for his purposes. Scripture promises that, and we see it time and time again, the way it plays out like this. Now, one time... As relates to our story here, Daniel received a dream. He was praying, and he received an image. It may have been a dream. It may have just been a vision that came to him. But the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, gives him an outline, a very, very precise outline of exactly when the Messiah is going to be born and the Messiah's death. 
Actually, also foretells of the exact time, which we call Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem as an adult. Now, working backward from those times, you can calculate these dates. I'm not going to go into that now, but for those of you who kind of geek out on these sorts of things, look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 30, 24 to 27 is exactly the snapshot, and Nehemiah 2. If you take those things and you go and you study them out, put together the timeline like a lot of people like to do, you'll see that that's exactly predicted the dates when all this happened. Now, through Daniel's time being there, he would have then relayed that information to the people around him. The Magi, not these very same three Magi, but their predecessors, their ancestors, would have heard of that. And it would have been knowledge that they would have passed on as they went. So if you combine that, that knowledge of that, that study, finding the exact date and time when these things are going to happen, you combine it with these other scriptures. Again, Micah 5.2 that I talked about earlier, about the ruler of Israel coming out of Bethlehem. And then this one, this is from Numbers uh, chapter 24, verse 17. Now, this is Balaam uh, speaking, and he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. So he's very, very long before this. He is predicting that the, the star will come out of this area and will signify a new king. And that king will go in and will crush the forehead. This is the Messiah that's coming. So you combine those things together and you have a sign to look for. And you combine the prophecy of Daniel then and you have a time to look for it. So not only would these magi have known what to look for and when to look for it, but so would have all of Israel. They would have been ready for this. People were ready for this when it happened. It wasn't a surprise that they had to figure out. They were watching for it. Now, there's debate as to whether or not Daniel actually converted these magi while he was there. Um, Some people believe that he did. But whether he did or he didn't, they were wise enough to see the proof when they saw it. When they saw it, they knew what it was. And it meant enough to them to pack up everything, pack up the gifts, and head across the desert. Now, in fact, what they took, we know the gifts that they brought, but they didn't have to guess at that either. Because 700 years before, so 700 BC, the prophet Isaiah actually told them what to bring on their trip. This is Isaiah 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and those from Sheba will come. Basically saying where these camels will come from. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. So they knew. They knew where to go, when to go, what to look for, and what to bring when they went. So with all that knowledge that they had there, they set out following the star. So the star appears signifying the birth. Now, we're going to talk about the star a little bit more here in a minute, but there's, if you look at timelines and you really look at it, it's very possible that the star they saw signifying the birth of the Messiah is not the same star that shows them the way to Jerusalem and maybe not the same star that actually shows them which house it's in. It's debatable whether it's a couple different stars, one star, 
We don't know that for sure, but they set out following the star, and that star itself is a subject of, of a lot of debate, as I said. They said it could be a comet. It could be a supernova of another planet. Um, it could be a conjunction of planets, as you heard Pastor Gabe talk about. Uh, my personal theory, I like to call it the conjunction function. Any Schoolhouse Rock fans out there? You're singing the song right now in your head, aren't you? Look at our community page, the community at DCC. Look at that page. There's a really cool video that we posted on there kind of explaining how that all works, the conjunction of planets. But here's something fun that I found. Most stars, when you look at stars, decorations, or Christmas ornaments, they look kind of like this, your typical star, right? Five points, typical star decorations. Now, when you look at a nativity scene, you typically see a different kind of star. Did you ever think about that? That star has a name. It looks more like this or some version of it. Maybe it's got a long bottom part to where it looks more like a cross, but it's always got multiple rays coming out. It's got a name, and it's called a Moravian star. And it's made to signify either an extra bright star or an explosion, whatever your theory is, or a conjunction of planets causing all these, this extra brightness. That's what it signifies. So the next time you see that star over in nativity with the multiple rays coming out, it's called the Moravian star, and that specifically is what it's signifying versus just the typical star in the sky. So tomorrow, you heard Pastor Gabe talk about it tomorrow. So tomorrow from 4 to 5, and you can look in the sky. If you don't want to join us here, that's fine. You'll be able to see it with the naked eye. Weather says it's going to be uh, really nice and clear for that. If you want to join us here, we'll have telescopes to look through. Um, But look at that. It's called the Bethlehem star, and I believe that. We don't have to parse whether it's a planets or, you know, whether that's the right thing. To me, it's significant. It's been 800 years since this happened. And before that, most say it was the time of Christ when it happened last. It's significant. I love thinking about that. So that's just a little side rabbit trail. Let's go back to these magi as they travel to Jerusalem. When they get there, so they're traveling with their, and it's not just the three. They probably have servants and people bringing supplies. It's kind of a camel train. When they get there, the first thing they do is start asking around. Where is the king of the Jews? Where was he born? Where We saw the star. Where is he? And they start asking around. Now, they don't immediately go and present themselves to Herod and ask him. They're not subjects of Herod. They're, they're from a long way away. They're just visitors. So they don't particularly think they have to go see Herod. So they just start asking around. Now here's the problem though. Herod hears that there's these group of magi from the east who've traveled all this way and they're asking around about the king of the Jews. And that starts to bug him. It starts to to create some questions in his mind. Matthew 2.3 says this, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Why do you think Herod would be troubled by this? After all, I mean, there's all this prophecy about the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the promised Messiah coming. And now these guys come from out of nowhere and they're asking around, where is he? And that troubled him. It troubled him for a lot of reasons. Number one, he knew the prophecies. He knew 
what the star and all these different things, what to look for. And he knew this was about the time they had been promised that this new Messiah would arrive. The only problem was he is in charge and he didn't want to give that up. He, in fact, probably called himself the king of the Jews. But he was getting old. He was getting old. A lot of accounts say his health was failing and he was under attack. Little pinprick attacks, but a lot of people trying to to come in and, and steal away his authority. And the people were aware of this. So if the word of this got out to the people, they're going to start looking and ignore him. It's going to be nothing but trouble. And he didn't want that. Now, the second part of that says, and all Jerusalem with him. Doesn't mean just a few or his closest friends. All of Jerusalem was also troubled by this. Now, you would think Jerusalem, being primarily Jewish who lived there, would also have been aware of the Messiah, had been praying for the Messiah to come, should have been super excited that the Messiah is here. Why were they troubled? They were troubled for this reason. Change in their time, change, especially in change of leadership, never happened without bloodshed. There was never a peaceful transition. As chaotic as you think our transition of leadership in our country is now, that's nothing compared to what it used to be. Typically, somebody had to die. There had to be wars and battles, and people had to die, and that's how leadership was changed. Also, Rome would never allow somebody to come in and and usurp the authority of Herod without a fight. So chances are, if Rome heard about this, they'd send a legion or two to come in and, and help to shore up Herod's authority. In other words, if this was all true, things were about to get worse for them, not better. How many of us think, this is terrible, I don't like the way things are now, I don't like our leadership, but it's what I know. And we fear a change. In this case, quite clearly a change for the better, but they were troubled by it. So what happens then next is that Herod gathers his advisors together, those who are closest to him, gathers them together and starts asking them to verify what the scripture had said. Like, I think I know what I know, but tell me. Help me figure this out. So he calls them together. Matthew 2, 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Okay, so he's wanting to know. Tell me again where this Messiah is to be born. And they quote the scripture from Micah 5, 2 that I told you about earlier. They quote that saying it's quite clear. Bethlehem, that's where the Messiah is going to be born. So Herod starts thinking, and he goes, I, I have to do something to be preemptive and, and, and crush this potential new king of the Jews before he grows to be a problem for me. I have to figure something out. So he hatches this plot to eliminate this threat. And so what he does is he calls the Magi in. Remember, they weren't subjects of him, but he invites them in, and he asks them this question secretly. Scripture says he secretly calls them in. Matthew 2, verses 7 and 8, read like this. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I may too come and worship him. We know that his designs were not to go and worship. 
But he wanted to know from the Magi, when did you see the star? And now he knows the place, and he's piecing these parts together to try and figure out how old is this child going to be now? So am I looking for a baby? Am I looking for a toddler? Am I looking for a four-year-old? What age range? And so he's asking the Magi what they know, what they saw, and piecing all these parts together to know who to look for and where. So he sends them out. He sends them out to go and find, uh, find this child. And the star guides them to the exact house. Guides them to the exact house. That's why I think it might be a different star because their reaction, Matthew 2.9, after hearing the king, they went their way and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw that star... Matthew 2.10, the next scripture, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I'm thinking, I saw the star announce the birth of, of this Christ child. I followed it to Jerusalem, but it's been a while since I've seen that star. And now I find it again. Same star, different star, it appears to them and guides them to the exact house. Reasons to rejoice with joy, because there it is. It's guiding us again. And they arrive there, and we all know this part of the story. When they arrive at the house, they present their gifts to Jesus. Matthew 2, verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Remember back, the prophet Isaiah had already told them what gifts they should bring, okay, with the exception of the last one, the myrrh. We'll talk about why that's significant here in a minute. Now, the first uh, depiction that I showed you of the Magi was from about, three, uh, about 300 A.D. Here's one. Here's a mosaic from 5th century A.D. This one is cool. This one is in Rome. Um, or not in Rome itself, but in Italy. And it shows, it's a mosaic, and it shows the three wise men. It also, their appearance is very, very uh, specific as well. And it even gives them names. Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar. That says Gaspar, but it's usually pronounced Caspar. So it gives them names. And the gifts that they have line up perfectly with what Scripture says. The first one, if we look at this first guy on the right in our, where we're looking, he's got gray hair, and that's Melchior. Melchior is the one who's bringing the gold. He's an old man, white hair, long beard, and he offers the Lord gold, which is a gift signifying royalty, a gift fit for a king. That's the gift that he offers. The next one is, is Gaspar. He's younger. He's got no beard. He's clearly, clearly much younger, clear complexion, clear face, um, much younger. And he brings frankincense, which is gifts signifying the high priesthood of Jesus. So very significant. And then the third, darker skinned on the left. He's got a beard. He's older as well. That's Balthazar. And Balthazar brings a gift of myrrh. Now, myrrh was not specifically listed by um, by Isaiah all that time ago, but this is a gift signifying it's a burial ointment. It's made for, for embalming and for perfuming bodies when you bury them. And so that gift given to this baby signified that this was a baby who was born uh, 
to die. And so all those gifts, and we could go, we could do an entire series just on those gifts. But for our purposes, they brought these gifts to the baby, to the Messiah. And then when that's over, they basically just disappear from history. Matthew 2.12 says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. In other words, they sneak out of town the back way because they don't want to bump into Herod and have to explain you know, where they're going and where the baby is. They don't want to give it up. Now, what's significant about that? These are pagans. These are pagans. Now, whether they, whether they really believed in the scriptures and the prophecies or not, we don't know for sure. But the Lord spoke to them. God spoke to them and warned them to leave by another way. God was revealing himself to even these pagans, revealing the birth of the Christ to these pagans from miles away. And that is, that's really the end of the biblical account of the Magi. We really don't see them anywhere else. Now, there's some tradition, which I want to show you here really quick, tradition of what happened. Do they ever wonder what happened to the Magi after that? Most of you know. But for those of you who did, I have this. There was found a medieval-era calendar that was found in a cathedral in Germany. And the calendar had an inscription that said, having undergone many trials and fatigues for the gospel, the three wise men met at Suwa, which is in Armenia, in AD 54 to celebrate the Feast of Christmas. So that's the last we kind of see of them in, in 54 AD where they gather together to kind of to celebrate and remember like, you know, it's like a re- class reunion from when we all, remember when we all went and saw the baby? Now, the celebration of the Epiphany, if you've ever heard of Epiphany, that's celebrated on a certain day. It's typically about 12 days after Christmas. This year, it'll be on January 6th, I think it is. That celebrates that revelation of the Christ to the Gentiles. Again, for most of us who aren't Jewish, that's great news. And that's reason to celebrate. Tradition now, again, tradition has it that Roman Emperor Zeno... um, bought or brought the remains. So he went up into Persia, found the remains of where they were buried, or I don't know if they were enshrined in Persia, about 490 AD, went up and got them and brought them back to Rome because he wanted to have them there. So he brought them back to Rome. Later, in about 1162, they were stolen. Like every good artifact, eventually it is stolen, and this time it arrived in Cologne. And in Cologne, it is actually still there. Let me show you a couple images. First one, that's what it looks like. It's a shrine that was built, the Shrine of the Three Kings. And that is basically the sarcophagus that all the remains of all three are in. It's covered with gold and very, very ornate. I'll show you the next picture to give you a little sense of the scale. So this is a picture of it where it is in that, in that cathedral it's got all the lights and everything. You see some people down clear at the bottom to kind of give you a, an idea of the scale of everything. These are massive candle holders up there. So that's just kind of, just for fun, if you want to see kind of what happened of that. But the important thing is, you could take that down. The important thing is, these pagan wise men from far, far away recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah. 
they had enough knowledge in their head to go looking. And when they saw the Messiah, they knew. They knew that what God had told them was true. God revealed his son to these men. And that is, for us, that's signifying the first offer of the new covenant to the rest of the world. That's why I believe that scripture is to all mankind, not all the men, not all the people, not just the nation of Israel, but to all of mankind. And that, that is good news, church. Now, real quickly, after another way that we know this, after telling the shepherds about this good news of great joy, what happens next in that scripture? Anybody know? Angels start singing. A chorus of heavenly hosts start singing. Luke 2.14, they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So there we have another little thing. Okay, if you're thinking about this, who is the men with whom he is pleased? Who's that? Because that's who this peace on earth is promised to. Now, if you were part of the earlier audience, the, the Jewish audience, you would have probably thought that means us, not only the nation of Israel, but those of us who do really, really well at holding on to all the rules, who follow the rules, make the sacrifices like we're supposed to, do everything that we're supposed to, the way we're supposed to do it, and when we're supposed to do it, that makes God pleased with us. That's what they would have been thinking. In other words, try harder and you might have a chance of being included in that good news. And it wasn't good news for everybody. Everybody at that time would not have considered this good news. Think about Herod. Herod and his gang, they were deeply troubled by this news. They certainly didn't like it. Most of the Jewish nation rejected it out of hand. It wasn't necessarily good news to them. Definitely not to the chief priests and the Pharisees and everybody who made their living by showing people how to live by the rules. But to all those who rejoiced at the news of the birth of Jesus, this new promise is offered. Now, to catch the meaning of that, we need to jump forward and then we'll jump back and then we'll jump forward again. Stay with me. The kind of biblical whiplash here. Ephesians 2.8, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. He's trying to explain to them the difference between grace and works. So no longer just for the Jews, but for all who would accept Jesus. Remember, Paul is talking to a Gentile audience when he says this. It actually also fulfills a promise given to Abraham. All the way back, if we go all the way back into Genesis, remember Abraham was a Gentile himself. And this was the promise to him, Genesis 12, 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. How many families? All the families of the earth. Not all the believing Jews in Israel all the families of the earth. And Paul, kind of later again, back to the Ephesians, explains kind of how that works. Because to them, there was the chosen people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen, favored people, the carriers of the covenant. And then there were these Gentiles. 
these heathens didn't belong there, shouldn't have been a part of this. And there was all that always constantly jealousy. Paul explains it to them like this. Ephesians 2, 12 to 15. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Paul explains how that works. That's good news for you. That's good news for everyone who accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so as I wrap this message up, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, now's the time. You have a decision to make. If you've known Jesus your whole life, that's the most blessed place you could possibly be in. But if you have never known him, or maybe you know of him, but you don't know him and you haven't invited him into your heart, into your life, it's your choice. And I urge you to accept this priceless gift that's offered to you. You can't buy it. There's no way you can buy it. There's no way you're smart enough to figure out how to earn it. But it is freely given, freely given to you. And we're going to pray here in a minute. Scripture says that all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. But even then, it's if you do this, then it really boils down to stop running, stop thinking you got it figured out. Realize that that troubled feeling that you often feel when someone mentions Jesus to you, That's something in your spirit that you won't be able to fix. That's something that only Jesus can fix that. Have you ever noticed that? Those of you who have known Christ for a long time, you can talk about God. You can talk about all kinds of things, but the minute you mention the word Jesus, now all of a sudden something turns and the conversation becomes a little bit more urgent, and that is because the same uneasiness that Herod felt. Herod knew in his heart what was happening, and he knew he couldn't stop it, and it made him uneasy. You can choose to be troubled by it like him, or you can just receive it with joy. It's a gift freely offered, and all you have to do is say yes to it. So if you call Jesus your Lord and Savior for the first time today, or if you always had, this is good news of great joy, that it is offered to you. It's offered to all of those who have been justified through faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ, in his work, not ours. The last scripture I'll have for you, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that church is why I celebrate 
the good news of great joy. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is the fulfillment of all your promises to us that have ever been and those to come will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I pray for those out there now who are maybe making that decision for the first time in their lives that there has to be something beyond what they can figure out. There has to be something beyond what they see in this world in front of them. And you are that something. You are the bringer of peace. You are the bringer of true joy, the eternal joy in the hope in who you are. And that gift is freely offered. And so I pray against any hesitation that anyone would have to just simply stop running and turn around because Jesus is there with his arms open and he wants to know you. And if you accept that, you just simply have to say yes. And your life will change. Your life will change from that moment forward, knowing that it's not all on your shoulders. It's not a burden that you have to bear. It's not a weight you have to carry. It's something that he has done. Give him your burdens. Give him your fears. Give him those things that trouble your heart. And he will take care of them, leaving you free to experience the joy of who he is. And Lord, we pray that, we pray that you have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're going to celebrate communion together. If you're here on the table in the back, we have the small uh, self-serve communion cups. You're free to go grab those right now if you'd like to take communion with us. If you're out there at home watching, or maybe for the first time ever, the elements, we make them convenient for you by having them here, but the elements themselves are not particularly important. If you're at home and you've got a Diet Coke and a slice of pizza left over from last night, a little snapshot of what my house looks like, what's important is what it signifies to you. And what it signifies, no matter what the elements themselves are, is the body of Christ broken for you. The body of Christ brought into this world as a child with the purpose of giving his life for you. And if you accept the sacrifice Christ made on your behalf, allowing his body to be broken, take the body. And the blood of Christ is the, is the blood of the new covenant. That new covenant that says, no matter how hard you try, you will never earn it on your own. So here it is for free. Take it. It's offered for you. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to celebrate Jesus, not only this day, but every day in our lives. And in your name we pray, amen. Thank you, guys. You worship with us. Hearts the heralding just see glory to the newborn King on earth.
God in the sinner's reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the trial of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Oh, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn
Close.